that surrounds and envelops and embraces our hearts, that we might know that even though you, as the song says, called us here below, this is not our home. Our home is with you. And we look to the day when forever we will be in your presence. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. So the, the 1999, for some of us that just sounds uh, such a short time ago, the movie The Matrix is a story about the technological fall of mankind. The creation of artificial intelligence as a a powerful uh, and self-aware entity creating uh, machines to do its bidding, imprisoning humans as batteries, of all other things, in in a virtual reality system. And now and then, because of a glitch, the, uh, some of the prisoners were able to break free. And then uh, once they did that, they would be pursued by this, the guardians of this artificial intelligence, both in and outside the Matrix, which was a virtual system. Neo, uh, played by an actor named Keanu Reeves, he was trying to free humanity from the system and also destroy uh, the matrix. So in that fictional world, Neo was able to gain awareness and power in the matrix. So in the consequential scene uh, where he is killed in the virtual world, but kept alive in the real world by love, he could stop bullets. So let me set the stage. You have Neo and you have uh, three of Matrix guardians in a narrow and dark hallway and they unleash a volley of uh, bullets at him. And Neo says, no. And he holds up his hands like this. And the bullets stop as if there was some invisible wall. Then he looks at them dismissively with a a look of his eyes and a tilt of his head, and they all fell to the ground. So, the question, was the power that Neo had available because he said no? Or perhaps was the power known to him because he used his hand to signal stop? course I don't know the answers to that in the matrix universe but it does raise a question for me what is the purpose or the power of physical expression in the conduct in our case of a miracle now this question always hits me more forcefully when I see uh, Jesus do something that I consider strange I hope you all agree with me that spitting in the dust, making mud, and putting it over a man's eyes and telling him to go wash in the pool of Siloam sounds a little strange. 
So, uh, but allow me to uh, interrupt or intercept, really, the thought process, because I want to offer an answer, because there are a lot of things I want to cover. And that is this. Jesus could simply have willed it. Because the power for Neo did not rely on him putting his hand out. That was for us to know he was telling them to stop. <laughs> no, that was in involving us in his will. In other words, when Jesus passed the man who was born blind, he could have just kept on walking and simply willed him to see. Is that not the case? That is, in fact, the case. So, you have a power that resided in Jesus, and this is all a reflection of what we've been studying in John all along. So, you remember in the introduction, he laid out certain theological realities that he was then going to demonstrate through the stories that Jesus did in real time. So John wrote this, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So think with me, right? God, Jesus in particular, did not have to bow His head. He did not have to hold His hands. He did not have to scrunch His face. He did not have to grit his teeth. All he had to do was will it so. See, would that be a difficulty for him, the one who spun the universe into existence? Wouldn't have been a difficulty at all. Then why? Why? Well, it was for our benefit, obviously. But more specifically, it was for the benefit of the Jews who were around him when they were watching the miracle unfold. There's more going on here, pardon the pun, than meets the eye. The <laughs> so thinking theologically, what was happening in the in the larger context and 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 how the immediate context applied to that? Well, it's tied in with John's purpose uh, in the writing of the gospel that you may believe. So the question of the Gospel of John is really to believe or not to believe. Come and see. Why do you need to come and see? To determine whether or not you will believe. John's primary goal was to deliver a specific theological message about the identity of Jesus Christ and His message. So we're just going to run through these briefly because sometimes we get lost in the foliages, you know, of the trees and we lose sight of the forest. So we're going to do a little forest thing, go back to the trees. And first in is the divinity of Jesus. The gospel opens with that statement, which I read earlier. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God identifying Jesus as divine. The second thing, and closely related to it, is the incarnation. So John emphasized that the divine being, that is the second person, uh, what we call of the Trinity, became human 
fully human in the person of Jesus. The Word, we see in John 1.14, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. In other words, it was not an apparition. He did not present Himself in some kind of form that we might understand, although it was just a projection of Him. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became flesh. That's what the Scripture tells us. Third, the new birth. John introduced that. We spent some time on that in chapter 3, where we see that spiritual rebirth is necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. Fourth, that salvation was through faith. It comes through faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. One of the most well-known verses in all the Bible is, of course, John 3.16, which states, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Belief in Jesus Christ is essential to having eternal life. Fifth, the role of the Holy Spirit. John highlights, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will, that the Holy Spirit is our advocate and He is also our comforter and He empowers us to do the work of ministry. And finally, the signs and the miracles. The Gospel of John includes numerous signs and miracles They were specifically, particularly the ones that are called out. This is the one we're looking at now is the sixth sign. They are specifically designed to demonstrate the identity of Jesus Christ, his divinity, his authenticity, and his message. So what we have here in this sixth sign is he's showing something to the Jewish people about his identity and his message. That is, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that healing, particularly eternal healing, that seeing uh, comes only through Him. So let's read John nine thirteen through 17 uh, together. So they brought the man who had formerly been blind to the Pharisees. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a Prophet. So John pointed out a few things here, uh, one of which he just kind of rolls right by it. It's actually central to the text is that he healed this man on the Sabbath, which is a, a troublesome issue for those uh, Jews who held to the Sabbath as something bound by not the law of God, but by the laws that they had uh, created. And so when the man born blind told them the facts, uh, they concluded, well, uh, he's not of God, 
And the reason he's not of God is because he's a sinner. We know he's a sinner because he's a Sabbath breaker. And then others, of course, said uh, that was not the case. You can't do these kinds of things and, uh, and not be from God. So according to their understanding, that is, those uh, who kept the Sabbath in a particular uh, way, uh, said uh, in a form that we can all easily understand, Jesus did not live up to their standards. I remember when I was in seminary, a uh, fictional resume uh, from the Apostle Peter was circulating around campus. And the heading on it was, Would you hire this man? And the amazing thing is, in fact, there's a whole set of these things. Would you hire the Apostle Paul? It turns out, from a resume perspective, the one you would hire, first and foremost, was Judas. It's kind of a strange thing when you look at it, written the way it was. But the question was, would you hire him? And the people who answered based on that resume, of course, and based on the facts in the text as well, you would say no. Why? Because our standards are too high. The the Pharisees strictly followed uh, the Jewish traditions about the law, particularly when it came to the Sabbath. Because it wasn't just the law that they followed, but it was all of the laws that they had created to keep them from breaking the law, which then over time became law itself. And so the, the standards were incredibly high. They had a long list of things that they could not do. They were so comprehensive, listen to me, that it regulated literally where you could spit. The Mishnah tells us that if you're walking along on the Shabbat, the Sabbath, and you have to spit, you cannot spit on the dirt. If you spit on the dirt, you might accidentally make clay. And if you make some clay with your spit mixed with the dirt, you have violated the Sabbath. So, It was strictly forbidden. You had to wait for a tree, go spit on a tree, or you had to wait for a rock, spit on a rock. You would be okay, but not on the dirt. And the thing is, is the focus was so laser beam on these man-made pieces of the law that they actually missed the miracle Not just the message, but the miracle itself that this man had, who was born blind, could now see. I suppose a a bit of application is that we are all born spiritually blind. This is—it's a problem when you think about it. I mean, really, Uh, the difficulty of being spiritually blind is that we can't see. That thing is, though, we don't know we can't see because we're blind. So it becomes tricky to determine whether you... You wouldn't stand up and say, oh, I'm spiritually blind. That's just not in our vocabulary because you wouldn't see enough to see that you were. So how can we figure out if we're spiritually blind? There's a couple of blindnesses here that I want to point out. One is blind to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as Savior. 
Okay, so that's one kind of blindness, but that's not the only kind of blindness. The other kind of blindness has to do with how we view Christ and his work. What do I mean by that? One of the ways that we can determine is there some spiritual blindness in our lives is how heavily do we rely on our traditions. I mean, the Pharisees concluded that Jesus could not be from God because he didn't obey their manufactured laws, uh, which, of course, you know, forbade the saliva and the, and the clay. So their adherence to legalism, our legalistic traditions. So legalism, there's, uh, we, could, we could spend a whole... We could have a conference on that. But as far as we're concerned here... It was a, a, a binding tradition that didn't allow them to even see this man. They didn't even care about this man's need. They did not see this man. This man was a tool for them ultimately to get to Jesus. So going back to Peter and his fictional resume, how much do we focus on the performance of others who do not meet our religious standards. If we quickly say that someone else is a sinner because of the way they dress or because of the way they pray or because of what they eat or won't eat or how they worship, then, or if we conclude even more so that they're evil or they're unclean, and I'm, I'm not talking about things that are common sense, right? Okay, we're talking about in the normal course of human interaction. I'm not talking about evil, right? I'm talking about differences in the way people are. And if we focus on them instead of ourselves, that is actually a signal that we have a blindness. Because the standard that we are to use is not our standard. The standard is the cross. And guess what? None of us, none of us, not one, meet that standard. We only have that for us because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so as Christ offers grace to us, we should offer grace to others. He died on the cross according to to the scripture for our sin. He did not die because he did anything wrong. He died in our place. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 15. Isaiah prophesied about this hundreds of years before, right? When he wrote, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. He died in our place on the cross so that we might live. So you say, okay, John, we got that. We're, we, we, un, we understand. But why is the, the title of your message Mud and Spit? Okay, so I've been doing some research. Fascinating research. Absolutely. Only if you're into some really arcane, and if you know what that word means, then you might be into this about spit. So I will say this, uh, we, 
we're never going to sort out some cultural elements in the Bible because we have no reference. We don't even have a clue. Not a clue. So some of the stuff that seems confusing to us, it was not likely confusing to the original uh, participant or reader, but it certainly is to us. But occasionally, if you do some research, you can find out what some of this stuff may have meant. There are real clues, and I'm going to offer some of them to you as to how you reason with what I offer. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to you. But when I read, and maybe you felt the same way, I don't, I don't know, but when I read that Jesus... Uh, spit on the ground, my first reaction was actually kind of, it was a little bit visceral, really. I mean, even after I've read it scores and scores, probably hundreds of times, isn't that insulting? I mean, really, isn't that insulting? Uh, uh, Barb and I here recently watched, uh, we're, I don't know if a fan is a, a right word as much as we're, uh, just drawn into it by the, my uh, big uh, fat Greek wedding trilogy, right? There's a lot of spitting in that. But the problem is, it's very confusing because sometimes they spit, you know, because it's something good. Sometimes they spit because it's something bad. It's always three times, who know? You know, I, I don't know. But anyway, it's confusing, But in most cases in the Bible, if you do a study, yes, it's true, you can do a study on spitting in the Bible. It's not good, by and large, okay? So after I graduated from Army uh, basic training, uh, the military required me to travel in uniform uh, when I was on official orders. And so I graduated, I was going off to California, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to Florida first. I like Florida. I'm going to go to Florida. And so there I am in Florida somewhere. I don't even remember uh, where, but I was buying some food and a woman came up to me and she spit on me. And I was like, uh, wow, okay. I, I realize I represent something else, but at the same time, it's not a good thing to get spit at or spit on, right? Now, Operation Linebacker 1, uh, the first continuous bombing campaign had just started and many people were uh, dying out. And I don't know what her, I don't know what her thing was. But of course, I didn't respond other than to clean myself off. But Jesus didn't spit on him. He spit on the ground. So in this, I, I want to introduce you to a fellow that you probably never heard of before. I've never heard of this guy. His name is Adam. Adam Bercy. Well, Adam, a doctoral student, he's not a doctoral student anymore, but he wrote his doctoral dissertation at Cornell University attempting to determine the boundaries between, let's say, pious religious expression and uh, magic, okay? What's the difference between some of the stuff that happens in the church in terms of healing, in terms of things that we would consider the miraculous, and the distinction between that and uh, uh, the Harry Potter kind of stuff, okay? So his dissertation was entitled 
So listen to me uh, uh, as I enunciate. Holy spit and magic spells, religion, magic, and the body in late ancient Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Okay? So, 307 pages about spit. Uh, Okay, so what in the world can we learn from him and that research in, in a context that seems so foreign to Holy Scripture? Well, actually we can. So I want to introduce you to two characters I found in his dissertation. That may be of interest to you. A, uh, the first one is uh, Rabbi Hanina Bendosa. And he lived during the time of Jesus. Odds are they knew each other or they knew about each other. They, they lived in the same time frame. And then you have Rabbi uh, Hanina his namesake, but that was from a century or so later. So typically, we don't talk about spit in polite company. This is probably the only time you'll ever hear about spit in the church. We just don't do it. Although, from a medical perspective, and some of you medical folks in here, saliva is far more critical to the function of the body than I could have ever imagined. Who knew? It's an amazing thing, really. But in the ancient world, there were traditions and beliefs in the classical world as a whole that human saliva had specific properties that made it harmful to snakes and certain animals, but healing for people. Okay, so let's go back to Rabbi uh, Hanina. So according to the Talmud, uh, Rabbi Hanina bin uh, Dosa that he was also reputed as a miracle worker. He even lived, get this, not only just during the time of Jesus, but he was from Galilee. So small world kind of stuff here. It is said of him, a particular person once came before a rabbi, Hanina, and said to him, I am sure that this man is firstborn. Rabbi Hanina said to him, how do you know? The, people, the person replied, because when people come to his father, he used to say to them, go to my son, Shechath, who is firstborn, and his saliva heals. Might he not have been the firstborn of his mother only, but not of the father? There is a tradition that the saliva of the firstborn of the father heals, but that the mother's firstborn does not heal. Okay, so let me translate that, or more accurately, let me interpret that for you. Remember in the original documents, right? Talking about the New Testament, the Old Testament. There were no chapters and verses. I'm sure you know that. If you haven't heard that before, uh, you're in for a little shock because they didn't show up until around... 1,500 years after the New Testament was written. It's a fairly recent, uh, fairly recent thing, but it was simply text. And in fact, in the original, there weren't even spaces between the words. It was just... Why, and why not, right? Do you know how hard it is to get parchment? You want to pack it all in there. So they just put it all in there, 
And it was one story, essentially, after another story, but that doesn't mean that those stories weren't related to each other. When you're going to write and you're going to put those stories down, you have intentionality about it. So what happened just before this in the text? We spent several weeks on it, but you're going to recall that there was a considerable debate about who Jesus' father was. So remember, Jesus claimed that his father was a god, and the Pharisees claimed that Jesus' father, he was an illegitimate son of a Samaritan, okay? meaning a Gentile. Probably some of them thought Roman soldier more than anything else. And then Jesus pointed out that their father was a devil. Well, so you can imagine this thing was heated. These guys were uh, really upset, and this conflict was also tied to the Sabbath. These things were happening in fairly uh, tight order, and it appears that as Jesus was leaving the temple, remember, he just went out from their midst, and that's where we pick up on this story. He was probably leaving Jerusalem, and on his way out of Jerusalem, he sees a man who was born blind from birth, and the disciples were completely wrapped up in the question, who's to blame? Whose fault is this? Someone must pay. And Jesus wasn't concerned about that question at all. Not only was he not concerned about that question, he was not concerned about what day it was. And you know, people say, well, well, Jesus did this deliberately in order to get the ire of the Pharisees. He did not. Uh, you know what, I just see it. Wow, man, it's Monday. I can't go heal that blind man until the Sabbath rolls around. He was just doing his business. He was about his father's business of healing and caring for and being compassionate to whoever he came across. And he didn't care if it was the Sabbath or not. And there's a reason for that. His concern was to relieve people's suffering to do the will of the Father, to proclaim his identity and his message. So he sees this man, he spits on the ground, and he makes clay. So back to Rabbi Hanani, or Hanina, sorry. The fact that the story ended up in the Talmud indicates that the belief that saliva from the firstborn, the healing properties of that were well known. Even the Greeks and the Romans held similar kinds of belief. And so if you go to, this is a little more uh, base, eh, but Rabbi uh, Hanina's namesake in the second century, it was said that people would watch where he walked to see if he ever walked barefoot on the dirt so that they could go and they could lick the dirt so that their saliva could mix with the dirt that he had touched because it had the power to heal. What's my point? My point is everybody knew that saliva and dust mixed together had the power to heal if it was from the firstborn son. Jesus was directly and powerfully telling the people, showing the people that he was the legitimate firstborn uh, and his father was God. And the people around, they knew exactly what he was 
communicating. Jesus could have healed this man any way he wanted to. Anyway, stand on your head, count to ten, oh, he would be healed. It didn't matter in terms of there being intrinsic power in what the man did. What mattered was what Jesus' power was. He intentionally chose a way that would demonstrate that he was the Son of God. I love the continuity of Scripture in, in just these moments because a brief time ago, he was being mocked as an illegitimate poser. And Jesus here heals this blind man with his saliva. It's as if he's saying to them, you ask me who my father is, now you know. My father is the source of healing and I am his firstborn and the rightful heir to the throne of David. Now there's one more bit that I want to mention about this. Uh, Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, Those were ancient manuscripts, many of them dating to the time and before the time of Christ. And it didn't hold just the scriptures. There were rules and this and that for these different communities like the Essenes and and others. One of the books that they found was called The Rule of the Community. And what we're concerned about as it relates to this is there's a verse in it that contemplates the human condition. And it says this, What shall one born of a woman be considered in your presence? Okay, so they're asking, what is is the essence of a, a human being? Shaped from dust, has he been? What shall humankind be considered in your presence? Okay, so you have this notion of they're saying, this is what, Man is, this is what a human being is in the presence of God. Shaped from dust, he has been, okay? He, that is God, has spat saliva, molded clay, and for dust is his life. You know, at many a funeral, I've said ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Now that's not a Bible quote. It's a few verses that have been uh, put together. It's solidly scriptural though. It is found in the Book of Common Prayer if you care to read that. Genesis 3 19 says, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Abraham says elsewhere, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. And of course, in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon says, all go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. So in a very real sense, in the time of Jesus, people believed 100% that they were made of clay, molded by God, the clay from the dust of the earth and God's saliva, molded into a human being and breathed in with life. And so when you begin to understand that, when you begin to understand how the people understood this, you can begin to see 
the magnitude of this miracle. I mean, how many, uh, don't ra- you don't need to raise your hands, but I'll, I'll raise mine because I'm really into this sort of thing. Um, taking one of those DNA tests like, you know, 23andMe or Ancestry or something like that, and then you can go on a place like GEDmatch or something like that, and you can find out that, you know, I have, believe it or not, uh, I have, because I've, you know, you look this up, right? It's kind of interesting. I have uh, relatives uh, who at some point were direct line uh, in, in China. I mean, you know, how in the world did that come about? I've got some over in the Caucasus region. I've got, uh, most of them are Scotland, Ireland, you know, uh, kind of northern uh, European thing. But here's the thing. In one spit, your entire physical makeup, lock, stock, and barrel in DNA is present there. When Jesus... And, and, and some of this is, I don't know how literal and I don't know how spiritual and I don't know how, I don't know where to place this, but the truth is that the DNA of God-made flesh was in that spit that he mixed with clay. And it can only be understood in the context of the creation that God was with that clay creating sight in this man, something that he never had. It's one thing to lose sight and regain it. It's an entire different thing to never have had sight. And they accused him of being this illegitimate, demon-possessed, Samaritan Sabbath-breaker, lying about his heritage and lying about his identity. And his response was to spit in the dust and create this clay to demonstrate that he was the Son of God, the Lord of the Sabbath. He created it. (laughs) And that the mercy of God is greater than the traditions of men. He saw a man born blind. And he gave that man sight in order to demonstrate the blindness of the Pharisees. But more than that, he demonstrated that he was the Son of God, the great physician and the source of all healing and all goodness. I think the last thing that I'll say is if you feel or have ever felt that you're huddled in some corner with a stick and a basket just begging, and you cannot see, you are not invisible to him. Not only does he see you, you are precious to him. He hears you. If it does not seem as if you do have to remember how long was it this man sat and waited, but his time came and the Lord of hosts healed him. So whatever your challenge, be it physical or spiritual or emotional, he sees you. And he will do what needs to be done to heal your heart. Father, we... A lot of things that we look at, we don't fully uh, understand. 
I, I think that even more things that we look at we don't fully appreciate. I looked for the day when one day that we will have complete understanding. But for the understanding that we do have, that we know that your word tells us it's sufficient for us to know how to live our lives in such a way uh, that you are pleased and that is through the agency of the Holy Spirit uh, and, and we're so grateful for that. So Lord, for the remainder of our day, uh, may our thoughts of you not uh, lag or be far behind, but may you forever be before us through Christ our Lord. Amen.